bandwidth for security now is provided by AOL Radio at AOL.com slash podcasting. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 48 for July 13th, 2006. Your questions, Steve's answers. Security Now is brought to you by Astaro, makers of the Astaro Security Gateway. On the web at www.astaro.com. It's time to take a look at security once again with our security expert in the Wizard of Shields up and spin right, Steve Gibson. Good, hey, Leo. Good afternoon, Steve. How you doing? Great to be back. Good. So, uh, before we get into our regular, because it's episode 48, our Mod 4 episode, so we're going to do yep. a question and answer. Before we get into that, a uh, couple of items we want to cover. Yeah, I did want to mention that uh, anyone who's got their computer updating its security from Microsoft, anyone using Microsoft Windows... Uh, this uh, the other day was the second Tuesday of the month of July, and Microsoft once again has a little packet of security updates. Nothing super critical for end users. There's an Excel problem, you know, various obscure things. However, not accepting those and keeping your system current means that they pile up. So you might as well do so. It will require a restart of your machine. So you might want to choose when to do this. There were a couple server-side things that were a little more uh, 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 of a concern, but nothing, you know, super extreme. So, you know, I, you know, I have mine set, and I recommend others do this if you've got Service Pack 2. It's uh, one of the options available to you. You just uh, open the System Properties Control Panel and go to Automatic Updates, and I've set mine to Automatic Recommended, which says automatically download recommended updates from my computer and install them. However, it doesn't install them. I just noticed that as you're talking, yeah, it downloaded them. And I have a little that little shield in my system tray saying updates are ready for your computer. Click here to install. Well, and I'm a little bit more of a control freak, or at least I'm a little more protective of someone else doing things to my machine. I mean, there are things that I explicitly don't want installed. And in fact, you can go to Windows Update and say... I don't want these things, and don't ever try to give them to me again. Just, just stuff you know. I, I'm not using and and don't need uh, apps. I don't have installed that they're they're doing security updates for. I've got mindset for install or download, but don't install. Right. Which actually maybe the way yours is said. No, it's not. That's what's odd. Uh, That's what I'm getting is a download and then let me know. <laughs> of course, well, I don't get it. It's, what it's not doing is saying what the different updates are. It's just giving, when I click the little shield, it says install. Well, no, I guess I can do a custom install. So it is exactly as you, uh, right. and, as and, you say. And I, I do. Even though I've said, well, I'm just going to point out to people that even if you have it automatic, you might want to check your system tray and see if there's that little yellow shield there because in my case, the automatic doesn't do it automatically. Yeah, and, and you know, I do like to sort of peruse the menu, see what it's going to be doing, just sort of I sort of know what's going on. I, I dislike the idea of this stuff all just happening in a completely right. automated fashion. Also, but don't you I, always up <laughs> don't you always install the critical updates anyway? I do. Uh, but the other, the other thing is unlike some people who power cycle their system constantly, so they're always rebooting, I am normally not rebooting my system unless there's a reason. I mean, I'll go months literally without rebooting my my system also i generally have all kinds of stuff going on at once i mean i've got lots of apps running i've got you know stuff spread across three screens and so just restarting my computer at an arbitrary time is not an option for me right. i need to you know deliberately close up loose ends save things that aren't saved and you know sort of tidy up before i do a a, a right. reboot so i don't want anything telling me you must reboot now and boy if you if you install those updates and then aren't prepared to reboot pretty soon it'll bug you it, it, pes <laughs> it pesters yeah. you to death yeah, it's like okay <laughs> fine already i'm gonna reboot that's why i have not yet pressed the little yellow shield for the updates right and i will as soon as we're done recording this podcast but well and, and and the other little pre-issue here is we got a lot of reports last week from 
uh, people who were having trouble downloading the previous episode, it cut off after a few minutes. Episode 46, I think it was. I think that's two weeks ago, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And I would, so I wanted to mention that, you know, that AOL is using Akamai's distribution system, and every so often, not often, well, I we had a you, Let me give you, I can give you the inside story on that. I screwed up. <laughs> so it, it, it doesn't happen if I do it right. Uh, that was a case where I'd uploaded it to Cashfly. Uh, or some other server. Oh, no, I know. I, I uploaded it to your server. And then I did a cross-copy. And instead of copying it to a staging folder, which I usually do, I copied it to the main folder. And what happens is when uh, when it's Thursday and people know that Security Now is about to be posted, they start hitting the server knowing that, because we use a consistent file naming convention, knowing right. that that's going to show up. If you hit the server as I'm uploading, your particular Akamai caching server, and there are many, will cache a partial version of the file so those people who share that server with you will from then on until Akamai <laughs> updates get a get a partial file that so we, one guy zaps it for everybody else well not everybody else and that's why uh, what you've probably saw and certainly i saw was it was a small percentage it wasn't it wasn't by any means everybody who downloaded it no. and and there were a couple of different file lengths and that's because two different caching servers had two different partials so the uh the, the trick on that, what I did was, as soon as I figured out that that had happened, is I reseeded the server with a new copy. Akamai makes a hash, uh, as far as I can tell, makes a hash of the file. When the hash changes, uh, even the slightest bit, it says, oh, there's a new file, and it will reseed its servers. So uh, I did that. Now, if you've already, you know, if, if you're using iTunes and it's already downloaded a partial copy, it won't know to get the full copy. So unfortunately, what you have to do then is remove security now from your podcasts and resubscribe Ooh. and at that point it will go oh and it'll download a full new version uh, but as you as you said you can always get it from uh, a 16 kilobit version from you because you don't use akamai that's true and what so so what i wanted to say was for for people who are frustrated that they for whatever reason at the moment they can't get the full one that the the lower quality quarter size is always available from GRC just as a fallback so I just wanted to reiterate that for 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 those people and I'm glad for the explanation you'll um, do it the right way from now yeah. on well I mean I can't <laughs> promise always I mean I knew that this would happen if I figured this out the you know at, when we first started using Akamai it was happening a lot right and I finally figured out oh do and this makes sense uh, the way I do it is upload it to a hidden folder so that people can't download a partial and then I copy it from the hidden folder to the visible folder, and presumably that copy happens so quickly or quickly enough that nobody is able to kind of start to download a small partial version of the. Boy, it sort of know. sounds like an imperfect distribution system. I think though. it's the way caching servers work, and that, yeah. so uh, um, yeah, I can't promise it won't happen again because I'm stupid and occasionally, as I did last on forty six, I make mistakes. But I do know what causes it, I believe, and I know how to avoid it, and so. Assuming no operator error, it shouldn't happen. It shouldn't happen very often. Let's put it that way. And uh, I'm su su uh, sufficiently chastened that I'll pay attention. I just wasn't paying attention when I transferred it over. It was, I think it was, uh, I had forgotten to upload it, and it was a late night. And, and ah, I'll just get it over here. I got it from you, Steve. And then I think you were in Toronto, weren't you? Yeah, I think that's what happened. I was, yeah. uh, I was, uh, I was uh, yeah. in Canada. So, uh, apologies for that. But uh, it, when that happens, yeah, there, that's what you can either get a 16 kilobit version from Steve. Or wait a little while, and once I've seen enough screams of pain, I'll fix the thing. Right, cool. Well, we've got some great questions. Oh, I'm excited. I've got my list in front of me. Shall I be your reader again? Sounds great. Starting with Fred from Mountain Home, Arkansas, who says he's becoming increasingly comfortable about using online banking. The same is true actually, for... Actually, uncomfortable. I'm sorry. Uncomfortable. <laughs> I'm becoming increasingly comfortable. He's more uncomfortable. The same is true for paying for online purchases by PayPal, removing funds directly from my checking account. Are these practices safe? My bank account uses a 10-character password. I use KeyPass password safe to copy and paste the password into the login page for my bank. Does this copy and paste procedure eliminate key loggers? Boy, this guy's really paranoid from being able to read the password. Well, I like this question because he, he says he's becoming increasingly uncomfortable about using online banking. What, what I think is happening is 
he's becoming increasingly aware yeah. <laughs> of security right. and of the problems. I mean, he's obviously now sort of aware of what a keylogger can do. He's he's just he's uncomfortable with, you know, the 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 possibility of bad things happening. So, I'm 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 glad because this is showing an awareness of, you know, what can go wrong. At the same time, obviously, he wants the convenience that online banking provides. Um, uh, he also mentioned PayPal removing funds directly from his checking account, which which brought up something that I wanted to mention about PayPal. Um, I, I use PayPal, and we've talked about it on the show several times, because it allows you to transfer funds to a third-party site without giving them all of your credit card or personal details. They get the money, but PayPal does the transfer. So, I mean, sure, PayPal could screw up too, potentially, but, but the idea is you'd, you'd like, from a security standpoint, you'd like to minimize the dissemination of your personally sensitive information where possible. The, the problem I have is that, and maybe you know why, Leo, PayPal really wants a bank transfer and not a credit card transaction. I have both. They, they, they required that I give them my bank account information in order to, like, verify me, whatever that meant, even though I was using my credit card for a long time before then. So now they have both, but I have to manually go in every single time and change this no it's like from don't debit my my checking account i want you to take it from my credit card the reason i want that control is if something happened i I was buying something online for example from from ebay and i didn't receive it or it wasn't in the condition that they they promised i want the control of being able to challenge that charge on my card. If eBay, if PayPal has sucked it out of my bank account, that money is gone. And so I prefer manually forcing PayPal to pull the money from my credit card because then, you know, I still have that money because my 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 credit card will will stand on my side and I'm able to, you know, deny that charge. Maybe that's why PayPal doesn't like the idea is that, you know, it gets just more complex for them. I think it's mostly cost. I, I can address this a little bit because we use PayPal for donations. In fact, it's the only way you can donation donate to, to twit.tv. Um, and that's easy for us. Um, we don't have to take credit cards, and and I think it's more secure. Some people are, are nervous about PayPal. In its early days, PayPal did was kind of notorious for some security issues. But they've been owned by eBay for a couple of years now. Um, I think they're very secure, and I think you do have the advantage of uh, only one provider knowing your credit card number. For instance, yep. when you pay us at twit.tv, I don't see any of your financial information. I get the money is transferred into a PayPal account. I think the reason PayPal would prefer to use checking, and I agree with you, Steve, I don't use, when I want to make payments, I far prefer to use a credit card than my checking account. But of course, the, the fees are lower if they use your checking account. And I think that's probably the primary uh, okay. reason. Credit right. card, as you know, credit card charges are very expensive. Uh, so for whatever reason, they do really encourage you. You can, in fact, you can actually run up against a limit of credit card charges. Eventually they'll say, no, sorry, you can't do this anymore. You have to become a verified PayPal uh, account with your checking account. The way they do it's kind of interesting. You give them the checking account number and they transfer two small yep. penny-sized uh, deposits into your account. And then you check your statement and see if they came in and, and verify by saying what size, uh, you know, how big the deposit was. You know, it's two or three cents, a nickel, 12 cents. And by doing so, verify that you, in fact, own the account. You have access to it. Um, and and it, work, it seems to work pretty well. I haven't heard of any large problems with PayPal. They do have a dispute resolution service that I think works quite well. In fact, a number of people have been using it. I get disputes every few days from people who forgot that they signed up for a yearly subscription to Twit. And when their yearly $20 is deducted from their PayPal account, they go, hey, I didn't get the, I didn't get my money. What's going on? And so I'll give them the money back, and that works very well. I mean, it's a very straightforward dispute resolution system. It doesn't have the force of law that the credit card dispute resolution system has though so i think you're probably right that when you're when you're when you're buying something it probably is better to use a, a credit card now I, I don't i don't know since the credit card is with paypal the payment goes through paypal i'm not sure if you have the same protections against the merchant 
Well, on on my side, I mean, I'm, it, it's my normal regular credit card that's registered with. So PayPal. you could still say to the credit card, "Don't pay this." Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Even absolutely. though it's through PayPal, not to the merchant directly. Correct. Yeah, Correct. I think PayPal's um, dispute resolution works pretty well. I, but I I don't like anybody putting stuff, having access to my checking account. I have yeah. to say, having I had to do that to become a uh, to be able to accept PayPal. And uh, I haven't had any problems, nor have I heard of any significant problems. And it's problems. funny that, 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 that from a consumer standpoint, on my side, when you mentioned that credit card limit, that is what finally induced me yeah. to give to give them my banking information. That And there was also something about my address being unverified. I right. mean, there was a lot of pressure on me to, to give them my banking information, and they have it now, and the, it defaults to using it. So every single time That's I make a, a payment, yeah. I have to go in and I manually override that and say, no, take the money from my card. Because again, I you know I'm if I'm buying something that may not work out, I want that control. It's worth mentioning too. There was a little news blurb. I haven't seen lots of attention or, or press on this. Google has now started a payment service in competition with PayPal. Yeah, it, and it, in fact, it, I'm looking into uh, using it. There's some real advantages if you use Google AdWords. The costs are much lower. In fact, it's probably free. So if you're a, if you're a merchant that uses Google AdWords to buy your uh, Google ads, uh, there's a lot of incentive to do it. Also, if you if you have Google ads and you ha- and accept Google payments, you'll see a little uh, button in your ad all of a sudden, which makes the ad stand out a little bit more. So I think for anybody who buys Google ads, there's a lot of incentive to do this. I think it's called checkout, isn't it? Yeah, Google checkout. Yeah. And eBay doesn't like it. eBay, which uh, who owns PayPal, has refused to accept Google checkout. So oh, there's a little there's a little battle going on. I, you know, I think that we will become more and more comfortable with these kinds of online transfer systems. Uh, and I think that they'll eventually take over. Uh, they make a lot of sense. Maybe it'll be a Microsoft wallet. Maybe it'll be some other company. Um, but right now, PayPal is in the forefront, and 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 because they're owned by eBay, um, and there's a lot of scrutiny of them, I think that they're they're trustworthy. Um, also, it's worth mentioning there was a credit card transaction system called SET S E T that never got off the ground. Apparently, it's limping around somewhere, um, but it offered exactly this kind of third-party insulation where where you and your credit card company would together pay a third party, the third party would never have access to your information directly. And so, you know, again, it, it, it's a variation on this idea. And and I agree. In, in general, in the long term, I wouldn't be at all surprised if, if people who are receiving money don't end up with your personal information. They just get the money from a third party that is isolating them. And again, it allows you to control how many individuals you must trust with yeah. this um, you know, financial information. Anyway, to finally, yeah. to finally answer Fred's question about his, uh, if he uses password safe to copy and paste his 10-character banking password, um, yes, copy and pasting would would probably bypass key loggers but there are there are many technologies that it would not bypass that are like reading fields or watching the data leaving your computer and so forth so i mean if your computer and there are several questions this week that the sort of involve this issue of you know how safe am i if my computer's got bad stuff in it well the answer is you're not I mean, so so it is so important to keep the bad stuff out of your machine, and we'll we'll, we'll see various takes on that in 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 the Q and A that we answer this week. But there were a lot of questions that sort of were involved with. Okay, if something's bad in my machine. <laughs> How how bad is it? It's like, well, it's really bad. Kind of the wrong question to ask. If you, if you think you have a keystroke logger, don't worry about whether cutting and pasting is going to work. You've got bigger problems. Anyway, so so Fred sees, is increasingly uncomfortable with online banking. And so I wanted to address that, you know, the issue is he's not wrong to be to be increasingly aware of the problems. And so, you know, if you're using online banking, certainly the security of your machine is more of a concern. I remember that, you know, 
years ago, people were saying, ah, I don't worry about computer security. I don't use my computer for anything other than, you know, surfing the net and, you know, doing some Google research and, and things. Well, and, and, and my feeling was at the time, well, yes, that's today. But, you know, it's very clear that services are going to be offered over the Internet and the security of your machine is going to become increasingly important as we're, we're depending upon them more and not just using them as an Internet surfing toy, but as, you know, more of our life, which, of course, is what online banking is, is doing. Indeed. Matt Jordahl of Leven, Arizona, says you've recommended the Cario firewall. Actually, the Cario personal firewall is the one you recommend, the free one from uh, Sunbelt Software. Several yep. Times on the podcast. He says, I just downloaded it to try it out. I thought it was great until I realized it was limiting my speed on network file transfers. I have a Linux box with several large drives, runs Samba, and I'm connected to it over a gigabit switch. Now, normally I can transfer files either way at around 40 megabytes a second. And uh, with Cario installed, I was limited to 20 to 30 megabytes a second receiving, 10 megabytes sending. Have you ever heard of this before? I have a pretty new motherboard, socket AM2, using the N-Force 5 SLI chipset. In other words, it's got a very, very fast computer. It's got a built-in onboard uh, gigabit NIC. Why is it slowing down? Well, this is an interesting question that I that I liked because it it raises the 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 specter of do our personal firewalls sl- impede and slow down our transfers in any significant fashion. It's something I remember being aware of because the early personal firewalls, if you were if you were transferring data over the net, you could see your your CPU being a lot busier with the firewall involved than it would be if the firewall wall weren't involved. Now, Matt's case is really extreme. I mean, he's he's got gigabit Ethernet. He's talking about a local transfer among machines, and he's you know forty megabytes per second that he's normally getting is three hundred and sixty megabits per second. So I mean, it, he's really got normally super high speed transfer so first of all in matt's case yes the firewall being another layer of filtering is having to take a look at 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 every connection and on some level every packet you know it's it's moving it through another layer of software which is slowing things down now the question would be whether he could he, he could change his permissions on the firewall or get it less involved in his LAN traffic than it is in his traffic going out onto the Internet. But for most people who are using a firewall to insulate them from online stuff, they don't have a gigabit connection. They're not transferring or and, and can't 360 megabits of data that, that oh, darn, is, is going to be throttled down to, to only 160. I mean, you know, they've got maybe a megabit if they're lucky. So, so my point is that in general, firewalls are going to take a tiny little ding in your per packet performance. But it's, I mean, it's nothing to worry about because what's happening is the internet's overall delay across the net is is completely masking any little packet delay with the packets coming in in a worst case scenario which is matt which, which is what matt describes where there is no essential there's no effective per packet delay in the network because he's got a gigabit network and a fast server just pumping files into his system there you're going to see a firewall effect but normally absolutely none so for most users who aren't in exactly matt's situation there'd be no problem true of a router too um, yes. Anything that's yes. going to process the traffic is going to slow it down a little bit. I, yeah, I, 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 I measured I, um, the uh, iPhantom, which is kind of an interesting device. It goes out uh, over the Internet and uses uh, the Phantom Technologies servers to do the processing. And that's about 10 to 20 percent, given that it's traveling out over to the Internet to their servers where it's being sanitized and then out to the real world. That seems like a, a minor difference. Yeah, well, and there it, it's not quite applicable because they're doing a lot you're, more. You're, I mean, you're actually running through, yes, through, yeah. through their own servers they're and doing, doing encryption and decryption and, yeah, and so yeah, forth. Yeah, yeah. Right. But even then, ten to twenty percent is not bad. What would you say? It's five percent or less for a, a normal firewall or rather? Actually, it's zero. 
um, and I, I guess I didn't describe it too well because I didn't want to go on about this. But but the the delay in I mean the the internet is all it's about waiting the, for the internet anyway. Exactly. The, so the while it's is, waiting, it has time to do what it does. Well, well, the internet's protocols are are designed brilliantly to hide the delay. Ah. For example, computers are able to send packets ahead of time, and, and, and the Internet only acknowledges them. Acknowledgements can come late, and everything still goes. So, so the guys who, who designed this packeting system understood that they had to have protocols that, that could intelligently anticipate the size of the buffers available at each end and send things in advance of of technically receiving permission or acknowledgments so so zero is the overhead oh, that in, in in a typical situation because your firewall is is negligible compared to the trans internet delays which are completely masked by the brilliant protocols we have now you did one other thing and i'm just going to bring this up because i don't want you to get email saying your math is wrong you said 40 oh, megabytes <laughs> it's not wrong I, I know why you did it i just wanted to clarify it you said 40 megabytes a second is 360 uh, megabits uh, per second oh 320 well but i, I was wondering because uh, is isn't there so it's normally eight bits per megabyte Right, but isn't it uh, or whatever it is? It's uh, you normally multiply by eight, <laughs> eight bits per byte, eight bits per byte, I should say. But sometimes there's an overhead uh, byte, a ninth bit, and I thought maybe you were including that in your uh, calculation. No, nope, I just multiplied. It wrong. just okay. So I did save you some email. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> Brian in Toronto. Asked, I thought you were being really clever, and I, there, there you go. I give you a lot of credit, Steve. Brian in Toronto asks again about Cario's personal firewall. He says it has a network intrusion protection. Or sorry, prevention system. I like to call it NIPS. And a host intrusion pre- prevention system, HIPS. Can you explain what intrusion prevention systems are and what type of attacks they prevent? Yeah, real quickly, without getting into the specific details, because I want to focus on the question. He talks about a network intrusion prevention and a host intrusion prevention. I thought this was a good question because it highlights that personal firewalls are beginning to evolve and take more responsibility for host-side problems, i.e. rootkit-style attacks. um, There are many ways in which software running in our computer is able to involve itself with other software in our computer. Um, A classic instance is, for example, a, 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 a programmer's debugger which is able to reach into another program and stop it and single-step it and allow it to be analyzed. Well, the fact that one program called the debugger is able to to insert itself into the, another process, you know, that's that's nice, except that it also means that malware is able to do the same sort of thing. So, So there isn't much isolation among processes not nearly as much as as most users would like and i'm i'm annoyed that in, in fact that the security is as bad internally as it is you know the, the 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 people who say well but what can you do once malware is in your computer anything could happen which is true and there are other technologies we'll be talking about in the future we're going to do some episodes on virtual machine technology leo to talk about you know what virtual machines are and, and, and how they work. So, so there, it is possible to create very good isolation, but by default, ROSs don't typically provide that kind of protection. So what's happening is that personal firewalls are acquiring features not just about the incoming network traffic, but about the behavior of the programs in in the computer themselves. And so that's that that's what this whole difference is between network intrusion prevention, which is just packet stuff on network communications, and a host intrusion prevention. It deals with with behavior and 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 catching malicious conduct of programs like rootkits trying to mess around with your computer internally. Uh, is this related to IDS, which I've heard? I've never heard of the HIPS and NIPS, but I have heard of IDS, intrusion detection systems, and many firewalls have those. Yeah, uh, IDS is is a technology basically that that looks at the traffic going by 
it's, so it's not it's not a firewall from from the standpoint of simply blocking or allowing packets, but it, a, a, an IDS actually interprets the traffic and tries to find bad things going on. For example, you might have a, a, an IDS on front of a server that is looking at like bad conduct in the URLs which remote users are submitting. There have been many problems in, for example, in the past with Microsoft's IIS server where you you, you could you could basically take it over by using a malformed URL. So an IDS could be in front of that, sort of pruning and, and purifying the traffic on the way in, mm. and also detecting anything that looked suspicious. Got it. Doug Darbuck, writing from his Hotmail account, has a question about rootkits. He writes, if you have a secure firewall installed in your system, such as Zone Alarm or, again, the Karyo firewall, <laughs> that's three in a row now, uh, will these be able to detect the traffic generated by a rootkit in the event your system gets infected one by one? You know, he's talking about the fact that software firewalls watch outbound connections. He says, fortunately, I haven't been infected by a rootkit, but I always closely monitor any communications of outbound programs or services. I imagine that unless the rootkit installs its own TCP IP stack, uh, some of the better software firewalls will detect the traffic, true? So here he's asking, if I've got a personal software firewall whose job it is to to control the the outbound traffic on my system so that I know which applications I'm giving permission, is there a way around it? And the answer is yes. Um, it the The firewall vendors have certainly done everything they can to prevent being circumvented and so and, and, and over time they've gotten much better the very first version 1.0 software firewalls would have been easy to circumvent if there was malware that was smart enough to do so back then the malware wasn't that smart so it's been an arms race the malware is getting better the firewalls are also getting better to keep pace with the malware and, and I mean this is what the firewall companies are doing is is working to keep their products as secure as possible the problem is as we've said once something is in your computer all bets are off the, you could turn the firewall off there are there is malware do. yes there is malware which has turned off well-known firewalls and there's been malware which knows about many firewalls so it's able to deal w with whatever you happen to be using then the firewall vendors countered by making their firewalls much harder to turn off but 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 again the rule is if something's in your machine you just can't be sure what's going on so so it's the, the the outbound monitoring is more useful for for non-malicious programs that you want to control than you know technically than 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 for something that is absolutely determined to get data out of your machine it's the problem is it's just all software and it's all pretty much running in in, in the same environment using the same services so you know it's an arms race they don't call it malware for nothing. Right. Lydell Anderson of East Hartford, Connecticut, has listened to all of our podcasts. He says he's read the GRC pages on DOS, DDoS, and DRDOS attacks. DRDOS? What's that? Uh, that's um, Distributed Reflection Denial oh, of Service. I thought it was the old uh, digital research <laughs> operating system. I shows what I know. He still has a question, though. How can I protect myself? from a DDoS that's aimed at port 80 on my web server. I can't, obviously, I can't block traffic to port 80. That would defeat the purpose of the website. So what do I do to protect? Well, this, of course, follows on uh, last week's talk about Internet weaponry. And I, I like the question because, you know, it sounds like, oh, here's a guy who's got a web server. And maybe he's had problems with denial of service attacks before, maybe not. But he wonders, what can he himself do? The answer, which really follows from what we were talking about last week, is unfortunately not much. I mean, virtually nothing. This is, this the, is comparable to a DOS attack on your router. Well, yes. It, the, the idea would be that he, he needs to offer port 80 to the world so that anybody anywhere is able to send traffic to port 80. The problem is that means that botnets 
everywhere in the world can send traffic to Port 80 and flood him. And it's legitimate now, traffic. He can't distinguish it from illegitimate traffic. That's the problem. Right. Right. Now, if he were hosted by a company which which was was offering protective services like we were saying, you know, for example, some gambling sites now are are using that technology in order to be more resistant towards towards against really large attacks. If he were there, then he'd be protected by the services offered by his his host. But most servers in in the net because that kind of protection is very expensive are not and so denial of service attacks are just something you tolerate it's just i mean there there isn't a a simple solution for this guy unfortunately how do they protect what do they do to protect you um as we talked about last week they just have really big pipes that are able to absorb a phenomenal amount of traffic that's it that's the only thing you can do that's really the only thing you can do we had talked uh, some years ago about maybe uh, changing the way you respond to the SIN requests by delaying or waiting for a second SIN request. Does any of techniques like that work? Well, th- there, are, there, there are many different types of appliances now being sold, um, but fundamentally, because of the way packets convene, as we were talking about the, the analogy of a magnifying glass focusing the sunlight down to a single point on the palm of your hand, similarly, unless you have a really huge pipe in the first place, that pipe is going to get flooded. And, you know, it sounds like um, like this guy, um, Lydell, you know, just has a web server and he'd like to be, you know, ha- have protection from denial of service attacks. And he's just, you know, like a regular guy. The problem is there just isn't any solution. Yeah. <laughs> when, when Typically when you buy uh, a hosting uh, solution, uh, especially if you buy a dedicated server, so you spend some money. You'll get a 10 megabit pipe. Now, that's easily flooded by a distributed denial of service attack. 10 megabits is nothing. Right. Um, a larger pipe that you might pay a little extra for is 100 megabits. That takes a, a little bit bigger of an attack. But you last week, you talked about attacks that were considerably bigger than that well, in, in the yeah, gigabit range. So 10, 10 megabits is 40 bots, each sending a quarter megabit out of a cable modem. 100 megabits is 400 bots. Those, by, now, by, by today's standards, those are small networks. So, so you've got thousands of bots in your IRC bot uh, network. Yep. Uh, you can you can choke pretty much any pipe unless the guy's got a you know gigabit pipes, and yep. that's very expensive. <laughs> Trust me, I, I know. Uh, let's see. We'll go to Daniel Hummer of Modesto, California, who asks: Is there a file size limit, or maybe a limit to the number of sites you can block using the host's file? We talked about that a couple episodes ago. Before your system starts really bogging down. Yeah, we got a bunch of great mail um, after that. Some some people found large files on the Internet that, that, that we talked about that, that are being maintained, and they, they said it's amazing when they added that, host, that, that, that large file to their host's file, all kinds of stuff just stopped, you know, ads and, and, and nonsense, because their computer was now looking up in the host file before going out onto the internet to see whether the host file provided an IP, which in this case is a like, you know, 0.0.0.0 or 127.0.0.1, something other than the real IP address that just prevents your computer from looking any further. So his question, I really like Daniel's question is, if the, because some of these files are really big, I mean, they're very comprehensive, they go on and on and on, and in fact, it's an education just just to read through, you see all of this weird, weird sites and things. Um, the answer is no. The host's file can be very big because Windows is very quick in looking through it. But more importantly, it's the speed of that versus the speed of going out across your connection to your ISP's DNS server and doing the lookup. It would ha- your computer would have to be incredibly slow in checking the host file for that not to be much faster than making an external request. So there really is no problem with host files getting really large in terms of their own performance, and they, they end up really speeding things up because they, they offload that traffic from your Internet connection. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, even if you had hundreds and hundreds, maybe even thousands of lines, it will just still be a, a small text file, relatively, and, and 
computers are very fast at getting through those. Especially now compared to, for example, a modem or even a, well, right. a, a, an old analog modem or a cable modem, right. which, you know, and it just, it, it's, it's a second of delay ver- versus just milliseconds to check the file. Plus, think about wh- what you're saving in terms of uh, uh, images and so forth you'd be downloading. I think it's, al- it's probably always a net gain in speed. Right. David Cockrell of Bossier, I, I got that wrong last time. Bossier City, Louisiana, wants to monitor his system's traffic, but he worries. Will freeware like TCP View and TDI Moz always show network traffic related to these tools that the bad guys use? I was uh, real curious about how those tools would show RDP, for instance, across a Hamachi connection. That's the remote desktop protocol Microsoft uses for Windows right. remote desktop. TDI Mon did show the traffic across the Hamachi connection. But I wonder if there were a way for traffic to be covered up by the tricks that are used in the bot world. You better explain this question because it's a little complicated. Well, this is this is again relates to could something in my computer alter the proper behavior of my computers of other software in the computer? And the answer, unfortunately, is yes. So we're going to be talking about network monitoring. Uh, actually, I think next week we're, we're, we're going to talk about these various way, uh, freeware and built-in ways to see what your computer is doing at any instant in time. Um, so the question is, is there a way for that to be fooled? And unfortunately, yes. If something were, is in your computer it can do anything it wants. Now, tools like TCP View and TDIMON by, by SysInternals guys are terrific tools, and they're great. But, they're, again, you can only really know that they're going to be doing the right thing for monitoring programs that are sort of playing by the rules. There are ways that they can be circumvented. If somebody wanted to get traffic out of your machine and its software maliciously trying to do so, it probably can. Or at least you cannot know that it can't. Now, there is an alternative, though, and that is if you were to run these tools in a separate machine, that is, if you're, for example, if you have, have a router, um, either a consumer router that shows you what's going on, or a, a, a Linux system, or, or a, a BSD Unix machine, which is on your, on your network perimeter, it, it has the ability not to be victim to any software running in your host machines. So if someone really wanted to know for sure what was going on, the idea would be to get that monitoring software out of the environment that you're trying to monitor. Put it on a separate machine which you are which you are not using as a workstation. You're not it's not going to be victim to random Windows infestations and malware and things. And and by virtue of being of being isolated by a network connection software is not going to have the same access malicious software is not going to have the same access to your network monitoring tools that it would if that if those tools were running in the same system so 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 there is a way to do this by separating those functions and that sounds like it's always a good idea for security but of course it requires extra hardware and so forth right Sean Doyle writes from somewhere on planet Earth. Did he say that or did you? <laughs> oh, he actually he actually put that down as his address. Somewhere on planet Earth. My goal is to run a game server that my friend and I can play together on. My problem is the game server requires information from port 8080, a standard internet port. But as soon as I turn on port forwarding to make that port available, your Shields Up service at grc.com. Highly recommended. Shields up. GRC.com. Shows a big red flag indicating I'm open to attack from the whole Internet. Is there a way for me to do this safely? Well, this was a great question because it, it highlights what we've talked about with port forwarding. Basically, it sounds like Sean's behind a router, which is good because it gives him protection from any unsolicited inbound traffic. The problem is his friend is unable to connect to his server, which is running behind his router. So he needs to do port forwarding, that is, open up a port on his router so that unsolicited incoming traffic to port 8080 is able to get through into his server. The problem is then, if he if he checks his security with you know my shields up service at, at GRC, I'm I'm checking 
incoming traffic on port 8080 because it is a commonly used port for web servers. A normal port is port 80, but but non non high permission servers, uh, servers that don't have root permissions, which are not allowed to open ports below 1024 often will run on 8080 just because it, it, it's it's a higher port that they have access to so so the the cool thing is that that Sean doesn't want to offer that server to everyone in the world if he if he needed to offer it to everyone in the world like that prior question um uh asked um, where he was just run, want, wanting to run a, a server on port 80 and let everybody in. The problem is everybody could be malicious. Um, in Sean's case, he only wants one friend to be able to connect. Well, if he knows that friend's IP address, he can only allow traffic in from that one IP. Now, if his router allows him to set up basically a firewall rule. Many of the newer firewall routers will allow you to say uh, the remote IP needs to be this on port 8080 and send the traffic on. So in his router, he might be able to permit only that, you know, his, his one friend to have incoming traffic on port 8080. But even if the router doesn't do that, his server certainly can. So, because because any traffic coming through the router will be forwarded to his server machine, a firewall running there could be instructed: drop everything, don't don't bounce anything, don't respond, be stealthful on port 8080, except for traffic coming from this one remote IP. So there should be a way he he can configure himself, and of course he can use shields up to make sure that port 8080 is stealthed for everyone but his one friend. I suspect he, like I, have has a cheap old router that doesn't do that fire the firewall rules. So that would be a good reason to upgrade to a newer router. Either that, or he ought to or be able to software. do the same thing yeah. on his server. Right, right, right. Verach, uh, oh boy, Veracha, Veracha. I'm usually good with names. This one's uh, eluded me. It's probably it's, it's, it's in Flemish, which is part of the problem. Verachert Armand in Antwerp, Belgium, was worried. I hope it's in Flemish. And <laughs> I'm not making something up. Was worried by a website he visited. He says a firewall test revealed that my private address, whether that's whatever 192.168 or 10.0.0, right. can be seen from the internet. Can it be reached from the internet? Uh. Yeah, this is so annoying. It happens um, all the time, though. It does, and that's why I wanted to bring it up, is that there are websites that terrify people by saying, this is your private address, and they'll show 192.168.0.1 or .2 or whatever. Well, there, okay, there are two things going on. First of all, what's happening is he's, he's browsing with with scripting enabled which i frown on but but it does allow the net to work to. <laughs> yeah i mean even yeah. our own site doesn't work without a little javascript running so you could turn so, javascript off but you're going to get a very different experience on the web well yeah you know that i I've, I've talked about internet zones and how you can get the best of both worlds by by locking down if you're using internet explorer by locking down your your script processing for unknown sites and only selectively enabling it for sites that you trust. The thing I would point out, though, that unlike ActionScript, which really is dangerous, JavaScript is is sandbox, and it, it's pretty difficult. In fact, I don't know of many exploits, except where there are browser holes that take advantage of JavaScript. So, and that's the problem, of course, is that scripting is complex, and we have a long history of browser yeah. holes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's just, you know, from a security standpoint... If you can, better not to have it enabled. Anyway, the point is that this site, and there are many of them that are scaring people, is using scripting in the browser to determine the machine's IP address and then presenting it in a window. As if they knew it. As if they knew, exactly. But they they may have been sent it by the script and then sent it back to his browser, or it could just be displaying it in the script locally, saying, this is your your IP. Well, okay, in the first, so, so 
the 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 annoying thing is that he could have full internet security with a, a a perfectly operating router blocking all traffic. He is not exposed in any way. Yet this web page is scaring him because it's looking at his IP inside his computer and showing it to him on his screen, which means nothing in, from a standpoint of security, except as I said that he's got scripting enabled, which he'd be better off without. Um, if he wants to get into that whole battle. Okay, the second thing is, it's a private IP. 192.168.something-something, you know, 10.anything, uh, 172.16 through whatever. I mean, these, and, we, and we've talked about this um, several times historically. Those IP addresses are non-routable IPs. They are specifically set aside for people to have in their own local networks so that so that they're able to create networks that don't conflict with IPs on the public internet. So even if this company had his IP address or anyone had his IP address, you can't use it at all. It will go nowhere. Packets that are stuck on the internet aimed at those IPs are just dropped immediately by routers. So he has nothing to worry about and he went to a website that was unfortunately working to scare him. Yeah. And I guess that would be the thing I would say is that I guess you could turn off JavaScript, but better to know that it's harmless. It can't, there's nothing they can do with that number, even if they knew it. Right. And they probably don't know it, because most of the time what this is is client-side, and they, they don't send the number back. They just display it. Uh, Brian Voller in Ashland, Oregon, has been busy. He writes, I would like to offer you a suggestion on combating phishing. That's phishing with a PH, those online scams or email scams where they try to get you to give up your private information yep. in hopes that you'll popularize this technique. A few days ago, I got a phishing email claiming to be from PayPal. I decided to respond. Oh, boy. I know. <laughs> Already, I don't like this. No, just read it. <laughs> <laughs> I decided to respond with a fake login and password. I used, I am a fisher as the email address and a series of random letters for the password. I submitted it several times very quickly in hopes that the phishing site was feeding them directly into PayPal instead of saving them for later in hopes of triggering the PayPal intrusion detection system. If PayPal looked at the logs, this would be 100% proof that it was a phisher trying to get in. I would like to know if you think this would be effective, especially if many tech-savvy users would do the same thing en masse. Of course, we'd have to submit logs that appeared legit but could be recognized only by the target site as fake. A bit like injecting radioactive dye in the body to trace a chemical's path. I think the best way would be for the users to make up a fake login name or trigger password, then enter that, etc., etc., etc. It's why we get a lot of emails like this from people who think they have conquered spam or phishing or viruses. It's, well, this yes. is a common thing. Everybody it, always wants some magic bullet. Well, and the, the reason I wanted to address this is, is there are people who... I mean, and I understand the the emotional side of this, who are really frustrated and annoyed by all the nonsense going on the net, and they want to take some action themselves to to deal with the problem. It's like people who who historically looked at their at their logs of internet traffic and and took the time to track down every random IP address that was sending junk at their IP and and figure out who to send an email complaint letter to <laughs> or the same thing with spam tracking it back to the quote originating server and complaining to the right and source. and and phishing is the same sort of thing so i mean i don't want to i don't want to blunt brian's enthusiasm for this but you know m my experience has been that you just you know you want as little involvement with this junk as possible if you get phishing email just delete it um you know how much time do you have it well there's a legitimate security concern here too by clicking on that link in the email He's going to a website, and he doesn't know what malware might also exist on that website. It's not merely a form. That, that, that's a very good point. In fact, by having any involvement with email that you suspect is not legitimate, I mean, he, he says he knew it was phishing email. The only proper thing to do is delete it. Hit the delete key. It, it really is the right thing. And just get in the habit of not clicking links in email, period, no matter who they come from. Don't click links in email. That's a very dangerous thing to do. Yeah. Eric Stoffer in sunny Malibu has been thinking about Internet weaponry, our last uh, show, and DOS attacks. 
He says, if a website is attacked, as you explained, they cannot track the origin of the traffic because the return IP addresses are often spoofed. However, since it appears that the ISPs are logging user traffic, couldn't that... (laughs) He says, thanks, President Bush, but I'll I'll leave out the politics here. Couldn't that information be used to help the community get rid of this malware? Ah, an interesting point. When a website is attacked, ISPs could be alerted to this fact. In a sense... Uh, local ISPs would have the list of originating computers. They could send messages to the probably unknowing participants in the attack that they may have bots in their system. Instructions could be provided for removing these bots. He's got he's got a hold of something very important, I think. Well, yeah, I, I like the question because it it brings up an issue that we didn't discuss in the whole Internet weaponry side, and that is the role of the ISP. You can't you know, spoof an IP address without... In effect, the collusion of your internet service provider. Well, yes, and and the the idea being that, and and I've talked about this. I've written about it on on my denial of service pages. The idea is that if you have a bot running in your machine at home, your your machine has an IP address which is is known to your ISP. Your ISP is what essentially is offering a range of public IPs to its to all of its customers so the ISP knows what are valid source IPs for for the traffic leaving their network that is to say your I if your if there was a bot in your machine using random numbers for the IP of the of the originating computer sending the packet, that is the source IP, the source of the packet, was just random numbers. Those packets egressing, that is leaving your ISP's network, are clearly invalid if the source IP could not be possible. That is, if it is not part of the network that the ISP controls, then it can't be a valid packet leaving the ISP. So there has been, historically, a real push for ISPs doing what's called egress filtering. That is, filtering packets egressing or leaving their network. And when by filtering, we just mean dropping. Just drop any packets that your network can't have generated legitimately because the source IP is not one that you own, ISP. Um, the problem is this involves more work and more equipment, more trouble, and it involves the ISP in a way that so far, as far as I know, very few, if any, ISPs are bothering with. That's too bad because that is single-handedly would eliminate IP address spoofing. Well, and, and the, the, the counter-argument is, well, yes, maybe just for that one ISP. The, and the, the thing that users could do, if, if, if this became prevalent, then what botnets would do is not randomly generate source IPs, but, but generate source IPs in the neighborhood of the computer that they're living on. So and so that would essentially generate IPs as if from other local users in the ISP's network. So again, good as this idea is, there are ways around it. No. Which is not to say that it doesn't make sense to do it, because it would it would solve some of the problem, but not solve all the problem. Now he uh, he's actually proposing that ISPs then use their secret super secret powers to uh, prosecute people who are doing this, or well, at or, least turn or, them in. Or, or to advise them well, what's going on. Now, it is the case that an ISP would know because on their on their network, you're part of a LAN, and so... They know they everybody's would, name and address. Well, uh, yes, and, and, and they know your actual IP. They also probably have your, your, um, your MAC address of your adapter because that's the way, as we know, traffic within a LAN over an ethernet lan is actually moved by mac address which which is not spoofable by a bot running in someone's computer so it would be possible for an isp to be more involved and for example detect that there are bot infected machines within their network um i've i've heard of isps doing this but it's not something that's done pervasively at this point you know it's funny because uh when spam became a problem, uh, Internet service providers resisted the notion of 
blocking Port 25 or, well, or of, of getting involved. Of getting involved they just at all. Didn't want to get involved. But eventually, we're compelled to. And yep. uh, I think maybe the same thing will happen here with that. Well, and we do see things happening. For example, my own cable modem provider, Cox, in Southern California, it's blocking a whole bunch of different ports where there have been problems in the past. They they are generally in you know, the, the various Microsoft security vulnerability, 135, um, 137, 38, 39, 445, things where there have been problems in the past. The ISP is saying, you know, basically for their own benefit, they don't want bots infecting their network and causing problems because it does create bandwidth traffic that they have to pay for. So at some level, there there is an expense to this. Although uh, an interesting point is raised in the um, net neutrality uh, controversy here because uh, if there were, for instance, and a security researcher in his blog uh, wrote this up, and I thought it was an interesting argument. I want to thank uh, John Puitt for uh, passing it along uh, to me. It was uh, uh, from it's it's actually Sands, uh, and I'll put a link in the show notes to uh, to this Sands is the Internet uh, Storm Center, and uh, it's um, uh, John Bambanek who says, well, if net neutrality were enforced, that would inhibit the ability of Internet service providers to start blocking certain ports or or uh, somehow protecting certain points. I don't think so. I think that uh, a law that prevents uh, ISPs from discriminating against some traffic wouldn't go so far as to prevent them from doing it for security reasons. But it might might scare Internet service providers to do that kind of thing. All the ISP would have to do would be to add to their to their service agreement. A, a a a waiver from that saying right. that anyone who wants service from the ISP agrees that they are not um, enforcing net neutrality for the benefit of their providers or, or their subscribers. They're going to block the following ports. Right. Blah blah blah. Yeah. So, yeah. Jay, our fi- our last question. Let me open the envelope here. <laughs> it's been kept on Funk and Wagnall's porch. For the last two weeks, Jason Partlow in Maryland has a terrific question about security zones in Internet Explorer. Terrific because you like security zones. Suppose, for example, that I have the Internet zone set to high security. That's how Steve does it. And my trusted site zone set to medium security. If I go to a trusted site but it has a frame or an advertisement on the page, it's from another site, will Internet Explorer treat that frame or ad like it's also part of the trusted site zone? Because it is coming from a different server, isn't it? Yeah. If I have my webmail provider, for instance, set it as a trusted site, but I get an email that has a body with a nasty script in it, will I be safe? I I, I presume it means he's on the uh, webmail provider's site, like Yahoo Mail or whatever. Correct. Good questions. Yeah, and the answer is Internet Explorer does the right thing. Uh, to to review very uh, briefly what's going on, um, uh, Internet Explorer allows you by domain to to control the behavior of your browser, so that so that in so that for example by default anything in the so-called Internet zone could have higher security than than domain names that you have decided to trust, like your email provider, your bank, and, and, and so forth. So Internet Explorer essentially is is dynamically varying its security based on where you go on the web, which is really, it's a great concept. I love the idea because it allows someone to really bolt their security down and then selectively trust sites where they're going to lessen their security in order to get the, the higher level of functionality, which many sites, and increasingly, are requiring, like having scripting running. Anyway, so the question was, if if you had a page that was a hybrid, it was the page was coming from someone you're, you had told Internet Explorer to trust, yet it had components which it was fetching from untrusted sites, does that wrapper of trust extend to anyone that the that that, that web that web provider or the web server or the page trusts? And the answer is no. Internet Explorer looks at every single request individually and will restrict will properly restrict the, the security of any components that you haven't told it to trust. There are uh, third-party programs out there that extend uh, Internet Explorer, make it easier to block down, uh, lock down Internet Explorer. Uh, in fact, there's one, and I'm trying to remember the name of it, um, that locks down your entire computer. It basically says, you can run as administrator, but it basically says, uh, 
that you don't have permission to do anything unless you specifically open it up. And I just can't remember the name of the program. So I'll have to I'll have to leave that for the show notes or something like that. But you just do it by hand and it seems to work very well. Right. Yeah. Well, that's it. Twelve down. Thank you, Steve. You, Absolutely. You're an amazing fella. <laughs> If there are people uh, who listen, and I know that there are many security pros uh, who listen who are concerned with security, they know about Astaro. I don't need to tell them. Astaro is one of the best-known security firms out there because, of course, of their Astaro security gateway software. Really fantastic uh, stuff. Astaro uh, is great for your medium or small business network if you need protection from spam, from viruses, from hackers. And of course, you get complete VPN capabilities, intrusion protection, as we were talking about, uh, but the real deal. Content filtering, and of course, an industrial-strength firewall and a simple, easy-to-use, high-performance appliance. ASTARO.com. It's open source, too. I really like that. Or call 877, the number 4, ASTARO, to schedule a free trial of an Astero, Astaro Security Gateway Appliance in your business. Then I also want to point people to the uh, really cool Astaro Command Center version 1, which is now free for users of the uh, ASG. It really gives you a neat way of monitoring your entire network. I use a 120, and I'm very happy with it. So when you're talking security, the name Astaro absolutely should come to mind. And we thank them for their support of security now. Yeah. A reminder that uh, Steve's site, grc.com, is a place to go for, as he said, if I screw up 16 kilobit versions of the show or anybody who wants a bandwidth uh, uh, easy bandwidth friendly version of security now transcriptions too thanks to our great transcriptionist Elaine and all the show notes at grc.com slash security now that's where you'll find shields up of course Steve's great security software he does a lot of free pro bono stuff and the bread and butter for Steve Gibson which is spin the fantastic file recovery and maintenance utility Everybody, if you've got a hard drive, you should have SpinRight. I mean, I'm serious. It is, it has saved my bacon many a time. And if you want to see some great testimonials, go to s p i n r i t e dot info. And Steve's put always putting up new uh, new letters there. Ah, uh, let's see. Anything else we want to cover? I think we're good for the day. Next good week, for the week. Next week we're going to. Uh, well, maybe not next week, but the next couple of weeks we're going to talk about virtualization. Yep. And that'll yeah, be vir- fun. Virtual machine technology. But I yeah. want to talk about monitoring communications traffic, how end, how end users who want to kind of get a sense for what's going on in their computer can quickly make that determination. And that's Ooh. what we'll do next week. Next week. Episode 49. Thank you yep. for being here, Steve Gibson. Thank you all for listening. Remember, take a look at the new site, twit.tv, and those donation buttons are still there in a beautiful lime green motif. If you want to support the show, we really appreciate your contributions. I'm Leo Laporte. We'll see you next time on Security Now. Security Now.